Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the evening service of Sunday the 12th of October 2014, entitled The Believer's Great Hope, Part 4. And the Bible reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. First Peter chapter 4, I'm going to be beginning in verse 7 this evening. For our initial reading, I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's holy word this evening, beginning in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. He says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you again this evening for the time that you've given us together. Lord, we praise you for just the privilege of being able to be in your house this evening. We're giving us this place to gather together, the freedom to be able to do so. Thank you, Lord, for your word that, you, that we have before us, that has been preserved right through the centuries, for your spirit that lives within us, Lord, through which you will give us understanding of that which we're looking at this evening. So, Father, now as you know the hearts of each and every individual, we pray that you would do that work which is impossible for man, but, Lord, that you would do all for your glory and your honor. For in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We've been doing a very, very brief overview, and I don't plan on preaching long this evening. I know you said, yeah, we've heard that, but I don't. Uh, I preached enough this morning if you were here to cover at least two services anyway. Uh, but, uh, uh, but we've been looking at First Peter, and we've said that the real theme of Peter in this first epistle that he wrote here is, of course, the believer's great hope, that great hope that we have as believers that the world knows nothing of. And as we have begun here, we, we looked, first of all, that... Uh, uh, our hope is established in our great salvation. That's where it begins. Without Jesus Christ, there is no hope. The great believer's hope that we have that is beyond the world's uh, comprehension even, it is established in our great salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, after we looked at it being established in our great salvation, we said that our great hope is exemplified in our lives before others. When you've got a great hope amidst all the suffering and the trials and the tribulations and all the, the things that go wrong in life all the time and all those, those battles and struggles, people are going to see there's something weird about this person. <laughs> there's something strange. You know, why, why is this person, why do they have joy in their hearts? Why are they at peace? Why can't, how can they be happy when it seems like that the whole world is falling apart around them, we said that our great hope, it's established in our great salvation, but it's exemplified in our lives before others. 
And then we saw last week that our great hope is essential in the midst of suffering. And we looked at a lot of those things, and, you know, it is it's one thing to be up and to be happy and to be joyful when everything is going good, when everything is smooth, when everything is happening like it's supposed to be happening. But it's a different thing to have that great hope in the midst of all the bad stuff when you're suffering, when nothing seems to be going right. But yet the, the believer's great hope, it is something that is essential in the midst of suffering. It gives us something that the world can't give us. This gives us something that is, that is a hope that is beyond understanding, but it's a hope that we know and feel even when times we can't even begin to express it in words. But I want to give you one more this evening that I believe picking up here in chapter 4, verse 7, and as we run through the verses through the end of the book here in chapter 5, uh, verse 14, I believe that there is something that gives us that great hope. You see, just as that great hope that the believer has, just as it is established in our great salvation, exemplified in our lives before others, and essential in the midst of suffering, I want to tell you this evening that our great hope is entrenched in our Savior's return. That blessed hope. We know the end of the story, we've said many times. We know how it finishes. You know, there's the old thing, you know, that sometimes you pick up a book and you want to go to the back and, and, and see how the story ends. Uh, you want to get there quick. Well, we've began from the beginning and we've been reading right through to the end and we know how it finishes. And I want you to know that one of the greatest hopes that the believer has is this hope that our Lord Jesus Christ is returning for us. And I just want to look at these verses this evening. Okay, how should that affect our lives? If we know that Jesus Christ is returning for us, that that trumpet is going to sound, and I believe that that is one of the cardinal, fundamental, uh, foundational doctrines of the Christian faith is the bodily return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Without it, there is no hope for the believer. We find that it ought to affect us in some ways. And that's what we, we see here in these verses. And first of all, we see in the verses that we've just read, beginning in chapter 4, verse uh, 7, uh, down through verse 11, that our hope is entrenched in our Savior's return. And we see here that that should affect the responsibility of Christian living. You see, as Christians, there are certain things that just ought to be in our lives certain things that we are responsible for, that we are, I know people fear that word, but accountable for before God. And he begins here in verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand. You say, well, Christians believe that. Even the apostles believed that. And they were alive when Jesus was walking upon this earth over 2,000 years ago. So where's he at? Why could that be written then and why could that be written now? Well, there's a number of things and we don't have time for all of them tonight, but I mentioned this this morning because we actually at the total opposite end this morning in the Genesis account. And of course, as we were looking there, we said, you know, that one thing that we fail to just remember sometimes is that God is completely outside of time. You know, it troubles us. It's a problem today because I don't have enough hours today to get done what I want to do. 
It's a problem this week because I got too many things on my to-do list that I'm never going to get the end of because I'm limited in the amount that I have. But even in our lifetimes, we're concerned about it because we only have so much of it. Our lives are only so long. But God doesn't know anything about those things. And prior to sin entering in in the Garden of Eden, this earth didn't know anything about those things. Nothing died until sin entered in. We find that one thing that we can realize for sure is, well, you know, it's like Jesus promised to come back soon. Well, even the Bible tells us that a thousand years with the Lord is, is what? A day? So, I mean, it's only been about two days since he left anyway, folks. You know, we're getting all concerned. Been 2,000. It's only been a couple of days, you know, on God's time schedule. And, and even that's stretching it, I believe. When you read that about a day being as a thousand years, that just means it's way out there beyond your, your counting ability. But that's not a lot of time. <coughs> if you really get to look at it, it's not even a lot of uh, generations in there. But I believe that that's what they taught. I believe they did look for the return of Jesus. And I believe that just as the Bible says there, that it is at hand. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. I know that it's at hand with God, but I believe that as we look around us at the signs of the times, that it is at hand for us. But the end of all things is at hand. What should that do for you? Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. What's it mean to be sober? means to, to, be, to, be, to be serious, to, to, to realize what you're doing, not to be doing foolish, crazy, drunken things, uh, but to be sober-minded, to be, to be serious about it, and to watch unto prayer, and above all things, have fervent charity. That's that, that, that agape love among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. That becomes a real reality. When you truly love, what is that charity? What is that agape love that we're reading about there? Well, it's the same kind of unconditional love that God loves us with. There are no zero, bold-faced, capital letters. There are no conditions on God's love. It would be impossible for God to love you in a more perfect love than what he already loves. He can't love you more. He can't love you less. We find that he's telling us here, though, that part of our responsibility in our Christian living, if we really believe that the return of Christ is soon, that the end of all things is at hand, we ought to do some serious thinking here. We ought to be watching under prayer. We ought to be spending time on our knees. You see, if we really, really believe that time is at hand, how much time do we have for our lost family members, our lost loved ones, our family, our friends? How much time do we have for them to be saved and become a Christian? How much time do we have for them to, to deal with their sin problem? Uh, we used to have a tape that, again, most, most preachers have preached something like it uh, sometime over the years, uh, but uh, used to even have it on the, uh, the, uh, the outreach table when we were in the city center and whatnot, you know, what would you do if you had but 12 hours to live? Uh, if you only had 12 hours to live, would you live it the same way? Well, you know, we ought to be living life that way. Uh, we ought to be living it as if this is our last day. What would be important to us? I think our priority list would change if we really lived like that we only had 
12 hours, 24 hours, seven days, whatever to week to live. Well, he's saying here that it, it ought to affect the way that we're living our lives. Uh, we ought to have this fervent, fervent, passionate, agape love among yourselves, for charity covereth a multitude of sins. <laughs> you know, one of the biggest problems in any church today, I don't care what name or tag or brand that you want to put on it or whatever, you know, the biggest problem with most churches is that they're made up of sinners saved by grace. <laughs> People that are so imperfect. Uh, we serve a perfect God, but we're a bunch of imperfect people. And of course, what he's saying here is that if we love each other in that same way that, that God loves us, we're not going to be so picked because usually the problem is you can look over there and you can see what so-and-so is doing wrong and you can see what so-and-so ought to be doing. And it's so easy to look at everybody else's problems. And he said, you know, you know if you really love each other, then uh, you're going to be able to look over a lot of those failings, those shortcomings. You're not going to be so quick to judge. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. Uh, these things ought to go without saying. That's one of, the, uh, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit even. I mean, to be hospitable one to another. You know, we ought to, so many times Christians just pass in the aisles on Sunday and that's it. They never see or hear or talk to each other until if they happen to be there next Sunday, they pass in the aisles again. But he's telling us that we ought to be hospitable one to another. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Every Christian is important to the body. Every Christian. And it takes all the body working together for it to function properly. You know, we need to be functioning within the body, but the body doesn't need just a bunch of dead limbs, broken limbs, just sitting there doing nothing. You know, we pray for one another. We encourage one another. That's part of what we come together for. What he's saying here is, man, if God's given you a gift, why aren't you using it? You can go back. You can listen to the whole series that we did on the Holy Spirit. Why are the gifts there? Why are the gifts used? Why did God give those gifts to the church? May I simply say to you that it's, it's not so that you can be seen and you can be known and you can be glorified so that the work of Jesus Christ can continue, that he'll get all the glory, that the body together will function as a whole, and that in the end, the main primary purpose of everything that we do on this earth is that sinners can be one to Christ. He's saying here that, you know, when God's blessed you, when he's given you a specific gift, you ought to be using it one for another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Speak like God would have you speak. Speak the words that God would have. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. Do it all in God's strength. You know, even the apostle Paul, when he was writing to the church, he said, you know, I don't come to you with enticing words so that I can do something come to you with his word. And that's the way that not just for preachers, but for all Christians today, there's only, there's only one thing that can bring faith to the hearer. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. This is what will change lives, not what we have to say, what God has to say. But he's saying that as Christians, 
If our hope is entrenched in our Savior's return, if we really believe that the end of all things is at hand, it ought to affect the way that we're living. He says, be ye therefore, because of this, be sober, watch unto prayer, love each other with that agape love, be hospitable one to another, use your gift for God's glory, minister as good stewards of his grace, speak the words of God, not your own. Minister in a way that will bring glory to God so that he might receive it all. So I'm saying to you this evening, folks, our great hope that we have as believers, it is entrenched in our Savior's return. And that ought to be seen in the responsibility of our Christian living. But also I believe we see in these next verses in the rewards of Christian suffering. <laughs> say the rewards of Christian suffering? You mean that you can actually, you know, it can be rewarding? Well, notice what he says here. Beginning in verse 12, he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange, strange thing happened unto you. Don't think that it's somehow weird and strange that you're going through this, this fiery trial. What does he go on to say? But rejoice, <laughs> rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. It reminds me of that great passage that we find in, of course, uh, Romans uh, chapter 8. And there, uh, in writing to the church at Rome, Paul said in verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It's not even worthy to compare with what the end of the story is going to bring for you and I. But rejoice. Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and the God of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. <laughs> Many things that the world does. They mean it for harm. They mean it for bad. They mean it for the detriment of all this religious rigmarole that, you know, they think that we'd be better off without anyway. But when those things come our way, when we are reproached for Christ's sake, then we ought to be glad. We ought to be happy that if it's for the sake of Jesus Christ that we're going through this fiery trial or that this world is bringing a reproach against us, praise God, because one day we're going to share in his glory and all that they can bring against us is not worthy to compare to that. But notice what he says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Of course, all of our suffering isn't for the sake of Christ to bring glory to him. Sometimes we get ourselves in a bit of bother because we're doing what we ought not to be doing. 
We're in places we ought not to be. We're doing and saying things that we ought not to be. In other words, if, if you're going to face the trials, if you're going to face the hardships, if you're going to go through these struggles, let it be for the right things, not for the wrong things. Don't let it be because you're living an ungodly life, because you're doing things that is contrary to what God wants. Let it be because you're doing what you should. He said, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. I'm sure there are a lot of illustrations that you could give. You know, I've, I've said many times, you know, one of the hard things for me to accept, and it took God doing a great work, was because you know, my dad and I were very, very, very close. We had a very special relationship. I loved him. I knew all my life. I was so thankful for being raised in a Christian home, even though I rebelled against that for a few years. And there were times, though, and I've shared with you before that, you know, my dad was a pastor, and, and, and I used to see him, and I used to see the people coming to him, and I guess that for most of my life, you know, the one thing that I asked God, I said, boy, if you could ever, ever, ever let me have a little bit of what he's got, it's just to let me love people like he loves people and to love people as unconditionally as he loves people. And, you know, the truth was it didn't matter. It didn't matter if that young man messed up and he was down in the jailhouse. He knew he could pick up the phone and call my dad and he would be there. It didn't matter if he stumbled up and messed up in life. No, he wasn't going to condone their sin but he wasn't going to not love them because that they'd got it wrong. Well, the Bible is saying here that if we really believe, if our great hope is entrenched in the return of Jesus Christ, that that is really at hand, that it's going to happen, it ought to affect the way that we live as Christians, our responsibilities in Christian living, and also the rewards of Christian suffering. If we can suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ, you see, the truth is, is that I lost my dad at a very early age. I was like 30 years old and he was like 53 years old. And that was kind of tough, but I can still remember the night that I got down on my knees in the hospital and prayed and gave that to God. And when they came just a little while longer and said that he was gone, I knew where he was at. I knew that he'd graduated to glory. And, you know, I tried to figure out one time, so why has he had to go through all this? Why has he had all these heart attacks? And why has he seemed to have to suffer through so much? But then I can remember that even as we were there at the funeral home, as people were coming by, the number of people whom his life had touched, not just because he was showing his godliness when things were smooth, you know, like even when he was in the hospital, he was in and out of the hospital a lot with his, he had like 10 heart attacks before, the, before his body finally got him out of here. But you know, as soon as he was out of that bed, he was down to witnessing in all those rooms to those other people in those other beds. He was letting the joy of the Lord show through him. I've shared with some of you here, a dear, dear friend of mine whom when his wife left this world, horrifically weakened to where she got to the point with cancer that she couldn't even lift her own hands. The last thing before that she took her dying breath is Jerry was on one side and I was on the other and she was pleading for us to hold her hands up for her so that she could praise God as she was leaving this world. These nurses and doctors and all trying to figure out, you know, but, you know, she's been in such pain. This cancer is eating her up. How can she want to be praising God for something like that? 
You see, that's what Peter's talking about here. You know, there's going to be suffering in life. Let's suffer for the right things. And if it's because that we're living for God, we ought not to be ashamed of it. We're going to be sharing in his glory one day. Let's not, let's not bring the suffering on ourselves for the wrong things, but let's live our lives for the Lord. And if some suffering comes along the way, let's let God truly be glorified. Let's let people see how we handle the bad things, not just the good things. Do we really believe what we say we believe? Notice that he goes on here. He said, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. We need to begin with ourselves. We need to be looking at ourselves, not what everybody else is doing and whether it's right or wrong or whatever. You see, if we truly believe that the end of all things is at hand, if our great hope is truly entrenched in our Savior's return, then it ought to affect the responsibilities that we have in our Christian living. These rewards for Christian suffering. In chapter 5, the first four verses, in the requirement of Christian leadership, you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a Christian leader. I'm not a Christian preacher. Those, those things don't apply to me. Well, yeah, they do. And You don't know what tomorrow holds. And there's things there. And he gives us these first four verses. He says, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, Ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. I'll simply say this, that, you know, going into the pastorate is not something that you do, he says, for filthy lucre, for money's sake. <laughs> what he's saying here is the responsibility is awesome. You know, even Peter, when he asked him, you know, if you really loved him, what do you go back? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And all he's saying here is that there is an awesome responsibility. There are requirements that are laid upon those who fall into that Christian leadership. One thing that you will begin to grasp and understand, and we'll move on, is that God calls some of the most unlikely characters. <laughs> the Bible says he uses the, the base things, the simple things, to confound the wise. It's often sometimes some of the people that you would least expect to ever see standing in that pulpit that God calls and places there. If we had to pick and choose, we'd have a whole different criteria. I can assure you, 
there's a lot of people out there that when they see somebody calling me Pastor Larry, they say, is that, that can't be the same guy. No. God uses unlikely people. But it's only by God's grace. You see, that's the thing. That's why that, you know, it's not through man's wisdom and man's education. You can get all the education in the world. You can get all the qualifications you want after your name. But if God doesn't call you and use you, then it's to no avail. But he's saying here that if, if you're put in that position, which I assure you, most of you fully understand how much of the grace of God it took to save your soul. Not because you deserved it, but because of God's marvelous grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's all of grace. And faith is the only route that will get you there. There's no other way. But I can assure you this, that it's that same grace wherein we stand. Yes, not, just, not where we're saved, but where we stand also. But it's that same grace that will allow anyone stand in that position of leadership to be an elder in God's church, only by God's grace. If they're there because they think they deserve to be there, because they think they're smarter than everybody else or they can do it better than anybody else, then you got the wrong person there anyway. We find that there are these requirements that he lays down for Christian leadership. And then I want to give you one other one this evening, picking up in verse 5. If our great hope, the believer's great hope, if it is truly entrenched in our Savior's return, <coughs> folks, there ought to be the realization of Christian victory. The realization, notice what he says here. He says, likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder, yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Anybody been here when I've illustrated that before? That casting all your burden upon me? When Jesus tells us to cast it there, I mean, I mean it literally. It means just that. I mean, it's just like... Brother Andy, if I take and I cast that upon you, brother, that's what it, get rid of it. Cast it upon me. Throw it upon me. We walk around with all these burdens and we're loaded down. And we're trying to figure out how am I going to get through this one and how am I going to handle that one. He's saying, get rid of them. Cast them upon me. We don't even have to stop and think about it. Casting your burdens upon him. Why? Because, because he cares for you. Be sober. There's that word again. But be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. That's where we were in Genesis chapter 3 this morning, if you were here. Satan's first appearance to mankind. Boy, everything was so perfect and beautiful. God himself had said that it was very good. Till he entered the scene. When Satan came, it all changed. And we saw as we looked to the very end that the Bible used that same word to describe him, that same subtlety, deception, because it says he, he is there 
trying to deceive the whole world. He's saying, Christians, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. That means you have to be afraid? No. It means you need to be aware. You need to recognize that there's an enemy there. You don't have to fear Satan if you're walking in the power of Jesus Christ, if your life really belongs to him, if it's his power that's working through you, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. It's funny. A lot of things remind me of Romans. In Romans chapter 8 also, we find that something that I remember the very first time that I ever saw that, and you know, probably everybody else already knew it, <laughs> but the very first time that I ever saw it, it was, man, I can't believe what it's saying there. Because most of us can quote verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. That's a great phenomenal. Matter of fact, I call that God's glorious guarantee. Man, it covers everything. There's no fine print that leaves anything out. The good, the bad, whatever, what you plan, what you don't plan, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And then it goes on to explain why, though. Why can we have that assurance? For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. You know what got me excited there, Brother Paul? They were all past tense. They were all done as far as God was concerned, even the glorification. I can assure you, when I look in the mirror, I don't see my glorified body yet. I see more of my body than I would like to see most of the time. But it's not glorified yet. But yet with God. You see, God already knew the beginning from the end. As a matter of fact, he says that he planned our salvation before the foundation of the world even. He knew how we were going to fall. <laughs> them that he knew, he called. Them that he called, he predestined to be just like Jesus Christ. And he justified them. And he glorified them. Just like Jesus Christ. With God, he can say it's already done because he doesn't mess around with any halfway business. There's no half-baked stuff with him. It's all or nothing. The job is completed. He who has begun a good work will complete it to the end. That's kind of what Peter's talking about here in a slightly different vein. He's the one. After you've suffered a while, he's going to make you perfect, establish you, strengthen you, settle you. You can't lose with him. 
you might go through some stickly stuff, some real suffering. Do it for God's glory. You know, we sang that song. That's why I picked it in the beginning. Victory in Jesus. There is victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a victory that you can count on. If you can't believe that part, how can you believe the part about him saving you in the first place? You know, we either accept the authority of all of God's word. Or we don't have any of God's word. We can't take his word for anything. It's all or it's nothing. And I happen to believe that it's all, that it's all God's, and that we can stake our eternity upon it. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. To him be glory. To him be the power. So this evening, these past few Sunday evenings, I've really been preaching primarily to you as a church, as believers, about the believer's great hope. But I want to remind you once again this evening, because I would be failing God and failing you if I didn't. If you know anything in this world, you need to know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. You don't need a dose of religion. You don't need a bunch of churchianity. You need to meet a person called Jesus Christ that died on the cross for you. He's the one that is your intercessor. He is your only access to God, but he is there interceding on your behalf. Our great hope is established in our great salvation. That's the only reason that we have this great hope is because we're saved in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You all look good to me this evening. But if there's a doubt in your mind or your heart, if there's a doubt, you see... I don't really believe that it's possible to get saved by accident. I don't believe that that's possible to it happen and you not know anything about it. I've said many times, the gospel is so simple that a child can understand it. But the Bible doesn't say that it's easy. It's not easy to admit you're a sinner. It's not easy that you need somebody else to save you. It's not easy to turn your back on a world of sin. It's not easy to let go of the world. It's not easy many times to recognize that if you follow this road with Jesus Christ, that maybe some of your closest family are going to reject you. Maybe some of the people that you know them. I'm not saying that it's easy, but I'm saying this evening, there is a lot of nasty stuff going on in this world. And we could get fearful. We could get nervous. But the truth is, you know, I tell people, you know, I said, you know, <laughs> I am happy and proud to be able to live in a free country. When I look around and I see the price that many people are having to pay today just to be a Christian, just to be named as a Christian, we take that too much for granted a lot of times. We have that freedom. But folks, you know, I'm, I'm not ashamed. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of my American heritage. I'm proud of my British heritage before that, that it goes from. I'm proud of this country. I'm proud of my home country. But I'm proud most of all to be a citizen of another land. I'm a citizen of heaven this evening. I'm a citizen there by birth, praise God, because I've been born into the family of God. This evening, that's what you need to know beyond any doubt. There is, there is an unbelievable great hope 
But that great hope is for the believer. And that hope is established in the great salvation that we have in our Lord. And that hope then is exemplified in our lives before others. It is essential in the midst of suffering, and it's entrenched in our Savior's return. Christians, I want to remind you of the great hope that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're listening here this evening, or maybe later somebody's listening on the internet or whatever, if you're listening to this, you don't have that absolute assurance. We just read about what God feels about humility and pride. Well, swallow your pride. Humble yourself. Admit that you're a sinner. Just call out upon God for mercy. Ask him to save you, not because of what you can do for him, but because of what Jesus Christ did for you. He died for you. He shed his blood without the shedding of blood. There's no remission of sin. You put your faith in his finished work. It was enough for God, I know, because three days later they found an empty tomb. If it hadn't have been, there would have been a body in there. We serve a risen Savior, as the great songwriter says. Christian, don't let the world beat you down. You've got a great hope amidst all of it. And if you're here or if you're listening, you don't know that Jesus that we're talking about, we'd sure love to take God's word and show you how you can have that assurance today. Father, we thank you this evening for the time that you've given us in your word again. And Lord, we know on these verses there is so much more that could be said, but we pray in this brief overview this evening that, Lord, you take and allow it to be an encouragement to your children to help them to remind them of that great blessed hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is returning for us soon. Lord, I pray that you would help us day by day because we know our many failings. Help us to live lives that will allow you to be glorified through us. Help us to handle the suffering and the situations in a way that, Lord, others can see that there's something different about us. Help us to love one another so unconditionally as you love us. Help us, Lord, to take our responsibilities seriously. And Lord, may everything that we do, may it be done in a way that would bring glory and honor to you and to your name. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Mm-hmm.